Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So, Alistair, to start us off, we've got a lovely question from Ellie Scott, who asks, share your best memories of Betty Boothroyd. And for listeners who haven't followed, Betty Boothroyd has died this week. So, Alistair. So, Betty, Yorkshire-born, Dewsbury. Uh, She was a tiller girl, famously, a dancer, and became an MP for West Bromwich. And she was the first ever woman Speaker of the House of Commons, first female Speaker of the House of Commons. Labour to her core, but I think hugely respected as a as a speaker, and of course became one of the most famous speakers because it coincided with um, with television cameras being allowed into Parliament. Uh, she wasn't the first TV speaker, but she was the first that was there for quite a long time. And she was a lovely, lovely, lovely woman. If I had, I think if I had one, two memories actually that pop into my head when people said that on the day she died. The first was. I remember during the period when I was really under the cosh uh, in number 10, when the, I felt like you know the, the Tories were after me, the media were after me the whole time, quite a few people on our own side were sort of thinking, oh, isn't it about time we sort of chopped his head off? And I, and I got a phone call from the Speaker's secretary saying, the Speaker wonders if you'd like to pop in for a cup of tea, which happened periodically. Um, and so I thought, oh God, not Betty as well. It's going to be sort of, you know, <laughs> ganging up on me. And I went there and we sat down and we had a cup of tea and we dunked our digestive biscuits and she could not have been nicer. And she just said, listen, you're getting a lot of grief. You're getting a lot of flack, but I just hope you understand that the reason you're getting it is because this lot are scared of you. And they, they know that you're doing a good job for Tony and that's your job and that's what you what you got to keep doing. Oh. And so little acts like that. And then the other really powerful memory, she got involved in the People's Vote campaign. And I just remember the first time, and obviously a lot of the, the, the campaign was full of young volunteers and most of them, well, they weren't born when Betty was kind of, you know, on the TV the whole time. And she came along and she did this speech and there were these young people behind her. You can get a film of this, young people on the stage behind her. And you could see the impact that she was having as she told her story of why Europe mattered so much to her. And she'd been to Germany after the war and she'd made some German friends. And the last time I spoke to her, I said this on the main podcast, the last time I spoke to her was when she phoned me up after that Radio 4 debate I did with Jacob Rees-Mogg. And so I can honestly say, I don't know what her actual last words were, but I can say that her last words to me were, I will not stop I will never give up on the dream that we'll one day be back in the European Union because this is an absolute, total, unmitigated disaster. So I will take that with me as inspiration going forward. Lovely. Now, time for you to ask me a question. Mel Griffiths, how long did it take you to stop laughing when you heard that Boris Johnson is hoping to be appointed NATO Secretary General? And same theme, my dog Bert. Do you think Boris Johnson seriously thinks he has a chance to become head of NATO? Isn't it common knowledge that he's taken Russian money, visited bunga bunga parties where they obtain compromise, and put an ex-KGB son in this House of Lords and also sat on the Russia report? Well, it's, it's, it's staggering, isn't it? <laughs> he would be the most unsuitable head of NATO imaginable. I mean, th- that's a job 
which has generally gone to quite thoughtful, serious people who work collegially, who focus on the details of defence expenditure. It would be a great honour if Britain were to get that job. It's been a, a long time since since um, actually George Robinson, George Robinson, mm. yeah, was um, and who did a very good job and was a very respected yeah. Labour Secretary General who'd been a Labour Minister. So Britain's been hoping to get that job back for a very long time. Um, I know there was there's been talk about Mark Sedwell, who's the uh, ex Cabinet Secretary, was in the running for it. Some people think Ben Wallace might be in the running for it, but I would have thought Boris Johnson would be. Short of making him the abbot of a Trappist monastery, it would be difficult to find a worse job. Mm. I also think that at the weekend, because uh, the other thing about NATO is that that position is decided by <laughs> the heads of government, essentially. And I think the most important head of government in relation to NATO is the president of America. And this little mini campaign Johnson was running coincided with the revelation in one of the Sunday newspapers that when he was discussing the protocol issues with some of his colleagues and somebody said well the americans we've got to do this to please the americans he said fuck the americans so i'm not sure that will help him either more serious one rory nigel mcfeet which is the better option for ukraine to employ the might of nato military hardware to completely push russia out of all ukraine and so risk world war three or for Ukraine to cede Crimea and Donbass in return for Russian troop withdrawal from remaining areas and so avert World War Three? Well, it's, it's, it's a good question, and it's one that people have got to keep asking because obviously the consensus now with the West, US and its allies, articulated by Fiona Hill, who I hope people have a chance to listen to on our, our leading podcast. She was good, wasn't she? She she was very serious, very interesting, and worth worth definitely listening to. And for people who don't know, she's probably the leading Russia expert in and around the US government. Um, anyway, the conventional wisdom is no appeasement, no compromise, arm Ukraine to the teeth, and fight until Russia withdraws back to its pre-2014 borders, including giving back Crimea. But at the same time, we just can't get into that lazily. There's mm. a lot to be said for it. It's absolutely true that Putin, unless he's contained, is a horrifying authoritarian dictator who'll want to get his teeth into the Baltic and expand Russia in every direction. It's also true that if we don't stand up to him in Ukraine, China and other countries, we tempted to screw around elsewhere. So I think we're on the right policy, but we've got to keep asking ourselves whether there is a route to peace. And in the end, peace does involve compromise. We're just not ready to get there yet. Mm. And one of the things that Fiona Hill said was that she worried that this becomes like kind of Iran, Iran, Iraq, just sort of grinds on. But I don't believe that the the Western democracies will keep supporting it to the extent that they have been, which I think we both agree has been impressive, albeit with some sort of hesitancy and some sort of slowness in response at times. Um, but ultimately, you're talking about a country here that's being being destroyed and Russia, we've said this so many times, Putin is not going to give up. He's the only person who actually could call this off, and he's unlikely to. And it feels like a sort of stalemate at the moment. It feels militarily like a stalemate. Now, how long can that go on, and how long can people keep saying, well, we have to just keep arming them more and more? That's where I would like to be, but I, I, I fear that uh, there was a big demonstration in, in Germany at the weekend, the hard right in America, the sort of Trumpians are becoming very kind of critical of Biden on continuing to sort of put so much into this. So the politics are not going to get easier. Yeah, it's not going to get easier. I think we both agree that 
the policy at the moment is correct. It was correct to get in behind Ukraine. It was right to challenge Russia. It's right to arm Ukraine. But it's also true that I've noticed over kind of 30 years in and out of foreign policy stuff that the West often gets overly optimistic. I remember in 2014, everybody predicting that Putin would be crushed by sanctions in six months. I remember people predicting in 2011 that Bashar al-Assad could only last six months. I remember, you'll remember people predicting that, you know, Osama bin Laden would die of kidney failure. I mean, there's a lot of uh, what's called optimism bias in this stuff. Mm. And I think Fiona Hill is more likely to be right that this is going to grind on for a long time. and It's going to test our democracy's the limit. Here's a question for you from Evan Shawcross. I was listening to the Question Time episode last week when you got into conspiracy theories as well as dealing with grief. And I was wondering, Alistair, if if either of you have lost someone who were close because they changed their beliefs. Evan Shawcross, I, for example, am attempting to deal with a way in which my father has fallen completely down the conspiracy rabbit hole. We can no longer talk about anything because of his obsession over vaccines, among other things. Have you experienced anything like this at all? What would you advise people to do? Try and change their views? Cut them out? God, that's because normally, am I wrong about this? Isn't it normally that it's older people who are worrying with about younger people having conspiracy theories, or have I got that wrong? This is a younger person saying that their elderly parent has got into this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I find that quite difficult, I must be honest. I think all you can do is... Do you try and persuade them? I don't know if you try and persuade them. I think you try and love them. In uh, if you think they're at the end, towards the end of their life, I think you just try and. <laughs> I don't know. It's that's a tough one. That's a tough. It's one. a very tough one, and I guess because I think one of the things that seems to happen in my experience, particularly with men as they get older, is that their minds become much more rigid, and mm. and I think it is a question of not us, eh, Rory? Not us, thank goodness. No, no not us, thank goodness. But it's sort of getting people onto another track, working out how you have the techniques to sort of move on. But the problem is that Evan's dad, I guess, this question around his obsession over vaccines will be more important to him than almost anything else. And he'll be reluctant to sort of move on and talk about something else. And he'll sense that his son isn't taking him seriously. So it must be very difficult. I think in those circumstances, I would do my level best to try and park it, but that's quite difficult. Okay, UBI, Universal Basic Income. Andrew Oliver Riley, be interested to hear your thoughts on Universal Basic Income. Broadly in favour until you actually try to look at the detail of how it would be done. So in my case, I'm very, very much in favour of cash. Obviously, that's what Give Directly, the charity I work with, does in Africa. I'm particularly interested, actually, in the impact of one-time payments, which can transform people's lives if done at the right level, one-time cash payments. And in Africa, because the levels of poverty, a a dollar there is like a kind of $100 in the United States. And $550 can make a transformatory difference in someone's life. Obviously, to some extent, our welfare states are based on the assumption that we should be providing cash support to make sure that people can meet their basic needs. Um, The question is whether we're adequately doing that and whether the best way to do that is to make it universal as opposed to targeted on the very poorest. Ed Miliband's uh, book, Go Big, has a lot on this, which is is worth, worth a read. Are you, are you missing him? Do you think he should be the intellectual powerhouse, the new Labour movement? Well, he's, he's, he's part of the shadow cabinet, isn't he? He's doing the big green stuff. Yeah. I think Ed has, uh, has grown out of leadership, as it were. <laughs> into, into his new position. Yeah. Here's, here's a weird question for you. Sam Wiltshire. 
As a youngish Aussie that moved to the UK in 2010, I don't understand why Margaret Thatcher is constantly referred to as Mrs. Thatcher, <laughs> whereas all other prime ministers are more often referred to as John Major or just Cameron. How come she has that distinction compared to Britain's other former prime ministers? You know, he said that's true, isn't it? I remember getting in real trouble from my constituency. When I first addressed them, I would refer to her as Thatcher. And they would get very, very, very angry Conservative Association members. They thought it was deeply disrespectful. I think, I think there's two things here. The first thing, I, I tend to call her Mrs. Thatcher, whereas I would not say Mr. Wilson or Mr. Yep. Major. Or even Mrs. May. You don't say Mrs. May, do you? No, I'd say, I'd say Theresa May, I think, yep. or I'd say May. Yeah. I think there is a sort of, this is back to the thing. I had one of those terrifying, <laughs> you know, it's the old thing about, am I the only person when I sit on a tube? I'm sitting there on the tube and, and a woman gets up and, and I was just conditioned as a child that you, you stand up for a woman. Okay. Yeah. So but now I'm sort of, I, I'm very reluctant because I think if I stand up, I'm basically saying to them, I think you're older and less fit than I am. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. But the same politeness. Yeah. Is I think what partly drives us calling her Mrs. Thatcher. Don't forget as well. I think Thatcher became people defined her as Thatcher in a very negative, aggressive, hateful way. It rhymed amongst other things with milk snatcher. Yeah. Whereas, whereas with Cameron, I don't think yeah. when people say Cameron, they're saying Cameron, that awful person. They're just saying Cameron, who was the prime minister and we call them by their surnames. Whereas Thatcher became quite a kind of, you know, if you said Thatcher, it meant you really hated her. So this is an Aussie talking about this, and you talking about the tube. My brief anecdote on this, I had a South African friend who was sent over as a young boy in the 1960s to Britain, never been outside South Africa. And his, his dad had told him that in Britain, you have to go around shaking hands with everyone, introducing yourself. So he, he got onto the district line and he walked down every seat saying, hello, just like to introduce myself. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Right. Here's one for, for you because you've been an MP. Theresa Featherstone, is there anything to be gained writing to your local MP? My MP seems completely disengaged from her constituents. Her replies to letters are generic platitudes, and she hasn't held a surgery in 10 years. Theresa, do send us in a question next week to tell us who that MP is, because I think MPs <laughs> who don't deal with their constituents should be outed and named and shamed. But yeah. I often tell people to write to their MPs, and and I think sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it's not. Well, well so I think, put, put, put it in context. So, firstly, I'm very surprised that her MP hasn't done a surgery in 10 years. I mean, nowadays, it doesn't matter whether you're Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, people are generally very, very assiduous constituency MPs. They'll be criticised a little bit by opponents, but in my experience, people do their surgeries very, very regularly, and they aim to do, on average, one a week. And... The post bag is insane. I mean, my predecessor's Ooh. predecessor was this, was Willie Whitelaw, uh, who was uh, Mrs. Thatcher's deputy prime minister. Because I talked to his secretary when she was doing him in the 1970s. He got something like four letters a week, and he would reply to them by hand in the House mm. of Commons Library. His greatest contribution to political discourse was to say that his job was to go around the country stirring up apathy. So he obviously, <laughs> he obviously succeeded if he got four letters a week. Well, I, well, and then again, I remember talking to a Labour MP who claimed that his predecessor had said to him on his first day in, let me show you how you deal with the correspondence in a safe Labour seat. And he picked up 200 letters on his desk and put them all in the rubbish bin. Oh, I don't believe that. Those days, I'll tell you who the MP is in the next podcast, but the 
truth is, since then, I think things have changed an enormous amount. I think all MPs really feel that the way they hold on to their seats is by being very hardworking constituency campaigners, getting out there leafleting. But I was receiving 23,000 emails mm. a year from people, a year. Mm. Mm. And if you think about that, and every single one of them, I would write a personal response to, but I needed a team to help draft those. So I'd read mm. everyone, I'd edit it a little bit, but I needed a whole team to put together hundreds of these replies a week. And one of the problems with the whole system, with the letters and going to see someone in surgery, is of course, the active MP, which most of us are nowadays, really try to champion our constituents. And sometimes it actually works. So sometimes if you write off to complain to, I don't know, the DFID pensions office, you'll write an injustice. Sometimes you will be able to get somebody, you know, let off a parking fine, or you'll be able to get some influence on a planning decision. But the truth is that it's a very odd system because it's very unfair to the people who aren't getting into their constituency MPs, mm, because mm. in a sense, by getting the constituency MP, you're jumping the process. And, and I don't know what the truth is that on the one hand, you want to say the civil service should be able to deal with citizens regardless of whether or not an MP writes in. But on the other hand, as an MP, an elected MP, I want to feel that my letters are read by civil servants. I have an influence and that I'm able to change a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And what about big letter writing campaigns? Like, you know, when you know it's a campaign, you're getting hundreds of postcards from the same, with the same line. Do you think they have any effect? Well, they do have an impact because you see them in your post box and it does drive you to go to the whips and say, oi, 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 I'm getting 500 emails this week about badges, whatever it is. Mm. But we've learned over time because these things just started getting going when I began as an MP. Increasingly, MPs will just post if you write a standardized email, they'll just have a standard reply on their website because they will have got 300 of the identical emails mm. sent to them. So I think the influence of those things are declining a little bit. Okay, let's go for a quick break. Right, Gabrielle, I'm getting the sense that Rory and Alistair don't do 50% of the housework and or childcare. Ooh. I would guesstimate this is not uncommon, but what is the justification for an unequal division of this work when both partners work? You're going to start off on that? Oh, there isn't, there isn't really one. And I can't, I mean, 50% doesn't even get close with me. I think I am probably the least domesticated person that anybody's ever met in terms of uh, doing stuff around the house. It's kind of weird. How did that happen, Alistair? Because you are basically a progressive lefty, but the only odd thing about you is that you spend less time doing domestic stuff than almost anyone I know. How did that happen? I think probably having a mother who... Uh, really looked after me on sort of things. That, uh, so I, I didn't learn to cook. Were, were you, were you a very worshipped son? Were you the kind of favorite, favorite boy? I wasn't, no, I wasn't worshipped. In fact, when, when my, when I was born as the third son, when my mum died, we found all these, these letters. She wrote this letter to her sister, my auntie Matty, who died recently and having made a hundred. And she said, she, she started this thing. It was something like, He's very nice, but sadly, it's another boy. Oh, but that was you as a baby. But, but as you grew up, presumably, you were the adored youngest son, the, the, the last boy in the house, etc. Well, I certainly, I didn't, I didn't have to, I never cooked. I never learned to cook. I've cooked one meal in my entire life. I'm, I'm not 
boasting yeah. about it. I'm yeah. saying it in some shape. Yeah. I've never changed a plug. I don't know how to change a tire. I am utterly impractical. I don't know. Honestly, when people say to me, how much money have you got? And I say, I don't know. They think I'm just sort of ridiculous, but it's because I don't actually know how to do online banking and, I, and Fiona does everything. And I'm not <laughs> proud of it. I'm not proud of it. Um, but I'm, I'm good at what I do. I'm good at what I do. And Fiona's really good at what she does. It's just that she does stuff that I do, work stuff, and she does a lot of other stuff as well. I think it's, it's and, and, and actually to, not, not to completely uh, sort of let us off the hook, it's actually true that in general still men are not doing 50% of the work. Mm. And what about what about you? What about you? Which I was pretty good with the children. I was pretty good when the children were growing up. Yeah, well, so I'm I'm talking to you at the moment. Shoshana's away in the states. I've got the kids alone here, so I've had them alone for three, four days. And will you cook three meals today? Well, I'm I don't go much. They don't get very good food with me. They get kind of boiled <laughs> eggs with me. It's kind of a bit rubbish. <laughs> it's a slight, slightly rubbish situation. But you know, they'll get home off the school bus at half past four. And I will be with them from half past four until seven when I'll read them the story and put them into bed. And then Very I'll good. start doing some work at seven. But no, Shoshana does so much more of the heavy lifting than I do. And I think that it is deeply unfair. And I think if you are a working woman and Shoshana's managing a major international charity with 300 staff, she's dealing with problems in Afghanistan and Myanmar, and, and she's worrying about all that stuff that you're talking about. And it's just impossible. I think it's very, very tough being a working mother with young kids. Um, Callum Swanson, did Tony Blair ever seriously consider remaining in Parliament after stepping down as PM, perhaps even serving in Gordon Brown's cabinet? No. Okay. Absolutely not. He, he, he was absolutely clear about that. He was going to go the day he resigned. Okay. Here's Catherine Adams. What do you think about the four-day working week? All my white-collar colleagues are agitating for it. I get the benefits. But what about public sector workers, NHS, teachers, council services, etc.? Seems unfair if it's just the corporate sector. We got a lot of questions about the four-day week. Yeah, why we is something? We why, is, why, why is everyone excited about the four-day week? There was a report uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now, if I get this right, we should put it in the in the newsletter. But it, essentially, it said that it was this experiment that was done with some pretty major companies. And there was an interview with one of the guys who ran this big company, and he said that productivity had gone up, the workforce were much happier, the whole thing had been a total success, and they're not they're not going back. And and they pay them the same, is that right? It's it's, yeah. it's crucially no loss of pay, so you get paid the same for four days that you used to be paid for five days. But it doesn't fit it doesn't fit with you, Alistair. You work like a seven day week. I mean, the notion of you on a four day week is a bit difficult to get my head around. Yeah, no, and I probably I think there are I think you're a bit like that, aren't you? Yeah, I think it is difficult at a senior level not to be working most of the time. Yeah. If you're in a responsible job, the idea that you can ever really turn your phone off or take a weekend off is quite tough. And I definitely don't think you should a four-day four week. I think the answer on the, the, the possible clash between private and public sector workers is that you change the culture. What I enjoyed about our chat with, with Bernie Sanders was his, um, his kind of, you know, yeah, this stuff's really, really difficult, but you've got to do some big, bold, difficult stuff. And I, th- I think this is a debate that's coming. Can I just get into that? Because this is question time. Paul Hilda, what did you make of at Bernie Sanders on his recent visit to the UK? Well, apart from the fact that he did far too many interviews, uh, but apart from that, I thought he, he, he made he made a very positive impression. And, you know, our interview obviously will be the, the best of all the interviews that he did. I think we can be very – he actually said that himself, didn't he? He did indeed. And he went straight from us, I noticed, to your old friend Jeremy Corbyn. They had a lovely photograph together, and, and he said how much better the world would have been if Jeremy Corbyn and he had been ruling the world. 
Yeah, well, I guess that. Although I think he's, having just read his book, I don't, I think he's, I see the similarities with Jeremy Corbyn, but there are also an awful lot of differences. Did something we've not talked much about Jeremy Corbyn. Have you known him forever? Was he like a big figure in the early 80s? He wasn't really. No, he was, he, he was around and people were aware of him and he was a very good campaigner and he could get noticed and he made quite telling contributions. But no, I don't think he was, I would say he was a, he, he would have been seen as a, a big player on the political landscape back in the day, no. Just, just on this, because I never fully understand this, we never get into this much, but there was a battle in the Labour Party, wasn't there, throughout the 80s, which, in a sense, you, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were part of, and Jeremy Corbyn was on another wing of the party. That was like a, well, he was, he presumably, Jeremy Corbyn was no great fan of Tony Blair, to put it mildly. I don't think he'd personalise it in those ways, but I, I, he was no fan of what we were trying to do to the Labour Party. But I think that battle, in a way, had had already been fought. And when Neil Kinnock took on militant, and but certainly Jeremy Corbyn was uh, he was well known within the Labour Party. But I think he had his his key issues that he campaigned on, that he fought on. He was very associated with the Irish Republican cause, for example. He was very associated with Israel Palestine, as he is now, and. Always, I mean, I live not far from his constituency, always, I would say, seen as somebody that within his constituency, very, very hardworking, popular, etc. But no, was he somebody that when we were planning big things and big changes, were we thinking, well, how is Jeremy Corbyn going to react to this? No, he wasn't. So I think I've said to you before that even the day that Ed Miliband resigned, when I was actually in a radio studio with Jeremy Corbyn, talking about the fallout from the election that led to Ed's resignation. I honestly think if I'd have said on that day, Jeremy's going to be the next leader of the Labour Party, I'd have been, you know, bundled off in a in a white <laughs> van with the men in white coats. The, the other person we don't talk about much, but who Bernie Sanders reminded me of a bit, was Michael Foote. I mean, they both had that sense of a kind of highly sort of, quite a sort of professorial, serious, mm. serious manner yeah, I think that's a better, I think that's a better comparison. Cause the other thing I'd say about, about Sanders compared to, to Jeremy, and, and this definitely comes through in his book. Jeremy is very much a campaigner and I think a, a politician of protest. Whereas Sanders is very much about trying to get stuff done. I'm not saying Jeremy Corbyn doesn't care about what gets done. Of course he does. And I'd say the same about Michael Foote. Michael Foote was somebody who had huge experience in government. Michael was also an intellectual. He was a great writer. He was one of the most prolific readers ever. He, again, lived very near to us. And we were very friendly with him right to the end. And and when he died, a few of us were given the opportunity to go around to his house and just take whatever books we wanted of, of Michael's vast, vast library. And the thing you could tell, you know, when you go into somebody's, see their bookshelves, you can tell whether they're really a reader or not. And these were books that were, you talk about Marc Francois with his red stickers on his page. You know, these were books that were properly read. So I think that is, that is maybe a better comparison. Good. Okay. Well, I think we're co- coming towards the end, but do, have you got a last one that you want to finish on? Uh, yeah, talk about, it's another one about books, Rory. Jam Norman, you often talk about books you've enjoyed. Do you both always plow through a book even you, if you don't connect with it? Or is there a point where you just put it down and say it's not for you? Oh, I, I give up very, very quickly. So do I. So do I. What, what about Shoshana? Is this a man-woman thing? Fiona, I have sort of seen Fiona torture herself by reading books that after five pages she said, this is really crap. And then days later she's still reading it and i'm saying why are you reading a book she said because if i start a book i have to finish it 
Yeah, no, I'm completely unlike that. I think I've got at the moment something like 1,700 books on my Kindle. And I I've definitely, got about 11 by the bed. And I can't, I, I, the Kindle saved me. I used to travel with 20 books in my suitcase because I, I couldn't trust not to hop between them. But how does that fit, how does that fit with your only ever take hand luggage, which is, is, a, is a rule of life that must be obeyed well, by everybody? It, it's incredibly important rule, and it's become much easier since I moved over onto Kindle. Right. Now, we were just going to finish with book and TV recommendations. So Sarah McCabe asked for some Jordan book recommendations following mm-hmm. last week's Israel book recommendations. Um, on that, I would actually suggest weirdly that one of the things to look at if you're going to Jordan is books by and about the royal family. So Avi Schleim's Lion of Jordan, which is about King Hussein's worth reading, but actually the book by the current king, King Abdullah, uh, Our Last Best Hope, which focuses on the Middle East peace process, and perhaps to put in a plug for another Jordanian prince, Prince Ghazi, his Thinker's Guide to Islam. So there we are. There's three three Jordanian recommendations for me. The King Hussein book, um, I, I, I do, um, his funeral was one of the most incredible events I ever went to in my life. And he, he did, he really, I mean, as you know, I'm not much of a monarchist, but he really did seem to have something very, very special that held people together. Well, let's get a recommendation for you. What have you been watching? Or I am reading a book called Life in the Balance mm-hmm. by Jim Down, who is an intensive care unit doctor. And it's, uh, it's his stories of, of, of life in intensive care, um, including looking after Alexander Litvinenko, including dealing with uh, victims of bombings, but more, that's the kind of dramatic high-profile stuff. But actually, it's just really interesting about the kind of emotional and sometimes moral dilemmas that doctors have to have to live with. And, and, and also the fact that he, he's somebody who, who gets very anxious about stuff as well. And, you know, having, having just sort of, it's just, a, it's a very emotional account of what it's like to be a, an intensive care unit doctor. Oh, good. Oh, I, I'll look for that. Um, I've also been watching on Netflix. I don't know whether people enjoy watching foreign language stuff, but I've been watching Sacred Games, which is a Hindi series. Mm. Uh, it's a crime series. Of- have you finished Only Murders in the Building? You know, I really liked it. And then my mother and Shoshana got completely fed up with it and, and refused refused to keep watching it. Uh, that's interesting because I got fed up with it. Fiona's sticking with it and she's now into the second series. I got fed up with it. I, I, I found it very funny to start with. I quite enjoyed it. But I, a bit like some of the books by my bed, I, I gave up after about four episodes. Well, the other thing I've been uh, stuck on Twitter on is a huge conversation about the Marvel multiverse and people trying to tell me which of the 24 to 26 movies starring Iron Man, Thor, and the rest I should be watching. But my recommendation this week is Sacred Games. So it's on Netflix and it stars a slightly overworked uh, Sikh policeman in, in Mumbai. And it's sort of strange kind of half thriller, half mystery but also quite a sort of gritty portrait of change in Indian domestic life from the 1970s through. And, and I, I also enjoy trying to get my Hindi-Urdu a little bit better because it's got subtitles. Very good. Very good. Well, you're, you're obviously not working hard enough if you've got time to watch all these television series. Oh, exactly. 100%. I've just, I, I've just been working very, very hard and I've not you're, watched you're, anything. Well, you're a much more serious person than me. That's the, the main thing <laughs> to conclude this question time on. Right. Thank you very much. Right. Well, I'm going to have my turnip on toast for lunch now. T- turnip on toast and read a bit of Hegel for lunch. And then Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. See you later. See you later. Bye-bye.